Good morning and welcome to the Biraki Baptist Church Sunday morning service. It's great to have you with us. My name's Tom and I'm part of the ministry team here. And wherever you happen to be at the moment, whoever you're with, um, I hope that you enjoy the service this morning. We're going to start off by praying together, asking God to bless our time, to fill our hearts with his Holy Spirit. And then we're going to examine what he's got to say to us today through the word that he's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the world around us. We thank you, Lord, for the week that we've had. Father, we thank you for the, the, the fact that in every conversation we've had, every circumstance that we've been faced with, no matter how we feel that we've dealt with those things, we know that you have been there with us because you promised that, Lord. And we know that you're not a God who breaks his promises. So, Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and we really pray that as we, as we open up your word, as we explore what it's, what it's got to say to us, that we can hold, hold firmly to the truth that you are the unchanging God, that you are the same yesterday, today and forever, that you know every detail about our lives and you love us in spite of who we are. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for filling our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for, for being with us now. And we pray, Lord, that you will be present with us in our homes, in our gardens, wherever we happen to be. Bless us, Lord, as we worship you and as we, as we praise you and as we learn more and more about the depth of your love for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So, another week has gone by. We're, um, I don't know how many weeks into the, the whole coronavirus uh, pandemic, but once, once again this week, um, I'd love to be standing here with good news, with positive headlines, but it's not always, it's not always that straightforward, is it? This week we've seen, um, once again, restrictions being tightened. We've seen um, that suddenly actually the pandemic hasn't gone away. That, that virus is still out there. And it's very easy to be disheartened. It's very easy to, to feel quite disillusioned because some people may have booked holidays that they've had to since cancel. Or some people may just feel a sudden surge of fear at the thought of going out to a restaurant or a shop, whereas this time last week they were getting quite excited about the idea. But one thing is for sure. Life won't be the same at the end of all this as it was at the beginning. Now, I read this week um, an article which suggested that although we keep saying that things will change, actually we revert back to, um, to the, the path of least resistance. We will go back to living our lives exactly as we always have done because that's our nature. But I disagree with that because time and time again, I've been asked by, by church members and by people in the community, how is our church going to change for the better as a result of the coronavirus pandemic? How are we going to take advantage of these opportunities that people keep talking about? These opportunities for us to reach out to people, opportunities for us to, um, to serve our community in the way that we believe a church should serve its community. Already our language has changed. The phrase new normal and unprecedented times, these are, these are phrases which simply weren't in common use six months ago 
but now they seem to pop up in virtually every conversation that we have. Our language has already changed. Our thought processes have changed. When we walk into a shop, if we're not wearing a face mask, we feel out of place because that is a new normal, hopefully a temporary one, but it is currently a new normal. And there will be many other, many other aspects of life that no doubt you can think of that have changed. Now, a lot of the temporary changes are not ones that we would like to keep. The face masks, the, the, the social distancing, the limit to how many friends or family members we can see at any one time, the, the fact that we can't meet as a church to worship. These aren't positive measures. These aren't good changes, but they're necessary. But let's be frank. Change costs. Change is something that we talk about and we get quite excited about. A lot of us, and I'm guilty of this, we, we like the idea of change. We like the idea of building something uh, better than what we've got at the moment. We're never quite satisfied with, with what we've got. And we love the idea of change. But change requires sacrifice. Change requires pain sometimes. This field behind me, I walked through here one week ago and up to my knees were sheaths of wheat, strands of wheat growing up, a whole field of wheat. It was lovely, it was great. And you could walk along, you could pick it and you could, you could separate out the grain and eat handfuls of it, it was lovely. But now I come back here and a combine harvester has gone over the field. Every grain has been, has been taken and will be sold by the farmer who owns the field, quite rightly. This field has changed beyond recognition from what it was last week. A machine has driven over and hacked away the thing that's been growing here for months and months and months. And the whole process of harvest will begin and eventually lead into the cycle of replanting and re-harvesting next year. Now, I'm not suggesting that we run a combine harvester through our church, but I am suggesting that if we're serious about change, then we need to be serious about what it's going to cost us. So this morning, we're going to look at two examples of biblical change. Two examples that show us on a very human, very real level, how we can react when God calls us to change. First of all, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, we see a young man who comes to Jesus, and as far as he's concerned, he's a good person. As far as he's concerned, he's, he's, he's lived life well. Matthew 19, chapter 16. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? It's a perfectly reasonable question, isn't it? You say you can give eternal life. I believe in you. So, what do I need to do to get that? But you see, there's a mistake there, isn't there? You see, salvation isn't something that can be traded. 
this rich young man comes up to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? How much do I need to give away? How, much, um, how many people do I need to employ? How much land do I need to, to build almshouses on? How much do I need to donate to charity? How many people do I need to, to, to feed or clothe? You name your price. I'll meet it. And then you give me eternal life. That's the, that's the deal. Let's make a deal. But of course, Jesus doesn't work like that. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. You can imagine the rich young man was a little bit put out by this. Hang on, I've just offered you, I've just offered you anything you like. You could have named your price. And you're being a bit ungrateful, really, to be honest, Jesus. I'm, I'm disappointed. So Jesus says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which one? The man, which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replies, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. I've done all that, says the man. I've kept all these. What do I still lack? In other words, look, I've, I've done the whole everything, the whole package, I've done it. So... Come on in. what do I lack? You tell me. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be absolutely perfect, then go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When Jesus calls his disciples, he calls them to, to give up what they're doing, to drop their nets or to abandon their, their, their offices and to follow him. Now, we don't know if Jesus ever intended this man to be one of his disciples, but he certainly gave him the invitation to follow him. He certainly, he certainly says, look, if you, if you want perfection, then you, you're right. You've kept, you've kept all those commandments I've listed. You've done well. I'm not knocking it. But if you want to go that step further, in other words, if you want to truly change, you need to give up your possessions. You need to go, sell your possessions and give to the poor. If you want to truly change, then you need to release yourself from the shackles of your wealth. Because at the moment, your attitude to life, despite the fact that you're a good person and you do a lot of good stuff and you've kept the commandments, your attitude is still that there is nothing in life that you can't buy. You need to drop that. You need to let that go. And if you can do that, then come and follow me. See, for this young man, the price of change is to give away his wealth because it's his wealth that is preventing him from truly changing. As long as he's got his wealth, he's happy to keep all the commandments. As long as he's got his wealth, life is, life is easy. It's easy not to, to murder or steal because you don't need to steal anything. You don't need to, to kill for anything. He's not desperate. He's not reliant on Jesus because he's reliant on his wealth. He buys what he wants to buy. Jesus sees this. 
And so in the response of this rich young man, we see his true heart. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus hasn't condemned his wealth. Jesus hasn't said it's wrong to have wealth. Jesus has just tested him. He said, you, you want to change? You, you really want to change? Well, this is what you need to do. And the price of change is too much. This, this young man just cannot bring himself to do it. He goes away sad. But he doesn't go away to obediently follow what Jesus has told him to do. You see, this young man, he, he wanted change. He wanted eternal life. He wanted salvation. He, he acknowledged Jesus. He acknowledged that Jesus was the one who could give it to him. Now, don't forget, this is, this is a massive act of faith. This is before Jesus was crucified on the cross. This is before Jesus rose again. This is before the living Christ presented himself to, to 500 or more people before he ascended back into heaven. This is before the, the early church was formed by people who looked back at the ancient scriptures and recognised the, the prophecies that had been made about, about the Messiah and realised that Jesus was that Messiah. This is before any of that has taken place. This rich young man has tremendous faith. He has tremendous enlightenment. He sees Jesus for who he is, the bringer of salvation. But he cannot, he cannot bring himself to rely on Jesus more than he relies on his wealth. He cannot put Jesus at the centre of his existence. That's a step too far. When this young man comes to Jesus, in effect what he's saying is, I want eternal life, but I don't really want to change. I've spoken to several ministers that I studied with when I was at college and they found themselves going to churches who, who desperately want growth but they don't want to change. And that's tough because a wise man once said to me, if you don't change the way you're doing things, you're always going to get the same results. Ian Smith told me that. He must have heard it from a wise man. But it's true, isn't it? If we don't change the way we're doing things, then we're never going to change the results that we get. So turn back now, a few hundred pages and a few hundred years, to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, where we see the story of the call of Elisha. Now, I don't know about you, but I can sometimes make the mistake of thinking of Elisha as Elijah's apprentice. Um, which, of course, is true in some ways. They, they did work together, and, um, and at first he was called to be Elijah's apprentice. But it's not entirely fair, because Elisha went on to be um, a, a significant prophet, a man of God in his own right. And also, before he became an apprentice, um, he was a very successful, very wealthy farmer and landowner. In, ver in chapter 19, verse 19 of 1 Kings... We read how Elijah, having been instructed by God in a previous chapter to go and to find Elisha, who Elijah is told is going to be your, um, your next in line, the one to take over the, the mantle of God's prophet in Israel from you. 
Elijah goes to Elisha's farm. And most farmers at this time would have had a small amount of land. And they would have normally owned two oxen. Oxen were expensive. These were, these were the, the, the tractors of their day. You didn't have more than you needed. So most farmers, to plough and to um, do all the, the, the heavy lifting on a farm, found that two oxen was what they needed. And sure enough, when Elijah turns up, Elisha is in the field with a brace of oxen. But listen to this. This gives you an idea of, of Elisha's wealth. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. So actually, there was 24 oxen out ploughing on this day. It tells us two things. Firstly, they had a large amount of land. To have 24 oxen out, that's a, that's a large number. It also tells us that he was very, very wealthy to afford 24 oxen, to keep them sheltered, to keep them fed, to keep them healthy, was an expensive business. Elisha was driving two oxen, a brace of oxen, with a plough, which means that there must have been at least 11 other staff in the field, a team of 11 other workers. So not only could they afford to keep 24 oxen, not only did they have a huge amount of land, but also he could afford a decent-sized workforce to employ as well. This was a man of great status, a man of great wealth, a man who wasn't looking for a job, wasn't looking for a career change, but he was also a man who discerned the will of God. A man who was prepared to follow God at a moment's notice. You see, we've looked at the rich young man who went away disappointed when he'd been told that in order to make Jesus the centre of his life, in order to secure salvation, he had to give up his wealth. And now let's compare it with what happens with Elisha. Elijah goes up to Elisha and does something very significant. He takes the cloak from around his own shoulders and puts it on Elisha's shoulders. This is, this is a way of saying, you're becoming me. You're the next me. One day I will not be wearing this, this mantle anymore. This will not be my, my title. You are taking this role on. It was a handing over. And Elisha would have recognised immediately what was going on. He would have recognised who Elijah was and known the significance of this act. He would also have recognised that this act meant that he was going to have to sacrifice everything. If he wanted to be obedient to God, if he wanted to, to do what, um, what Elijah had just, had just made clear God wanted him to do, he was going to have to sacrifice everything. Is there a moment of indecision? Is there a moment of doubt? No, there doesn't appear to be. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen. In the middle of ploughing the field, he leaves his oxen and he runs after Elijah. There is no 
There is no, hang on, I'll just finish this. I'll just get the oxen back to the shed. I'll just finish ploughing this field. I'll just get someone to take over. None of that. He stops what he's doing right there and chases after Elijah. But he does say one thing. He says, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I'll come with you. This isn't a moment of hesitation or doubt. This is, let me, let me acknowledge the significance of what I'm doing. Let me respect my parents. Let me go and make it clear to them that I'm going. I've got to say goodbye one last time. This would have been a painful separation. Suddenly, at a moment's notice, Elisha's father is left with, with no one to take on the business. Maybe he had other sons, we don't know, but, but certainly we get the impression from this account that Elisha was the one who was taking over the business, the one who was leading teams of men out in the fields doing the hard work of ploughing and leading oxen. Think of all the hours that his father would have invested in him, teaching him the art of farming. Elisha thinks, I can't just disappear, I've got to go and say goodbye. Elijah hears this and knows that it's going to be difficult. He knows it's not going to be a, an easy parting. It never is when a child leaves a parent. And so he says, go back. He says, absolutely, go back. Show your parents the respect they deserve. Bid them farewell. Let them know where you're going. Let them know why you're going. Go back. And he says, but remember this moment. Remember what's just happened. Remember the significance of what we've just done. The handing over. Remember that you are a being obedient to God's calling on your life. If they plead you to stay, if they, if they, if they try, and, try and pull at the heartstrings or offer you a greater inheritance, whatever it might be, Remember this moment. You want change. You've been challenged to change and you've accepted change. And change is going to cost and change is going to be hurtful and change is sometimes going to be messy, but you're being obedient to God. God has asked you to change. And remember this moment. You are being obedient to God. So whatever is said in that conversation, do not let it persuade you to be disobedient to God. And so, Elisha left him and went back. And then listen to this. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. So there's this brilliant scene, isn't there, where Elisha, he doesn't just, he doesn't just go and shout, Mum, Dad, guess what, I've, I've got to go now. Instead, what he does, what he does is he makes it so that even if he wants to, he cannot go back to his former life. He takes the wood of his plough, he smashes up his plough and he builds a fire and he sets it on fire. He cannot plough anymore with that plough. He then takes his oxen. And just to make it so that he can't plough anymore with those oxen, so that they can't, they can't tow carts to market or, or, or 
carts of grain round the farm, whatever it was that they would normally do, he slaughters those oxen. He slaughters them. That plough and those oxen, those, that setup that he was, he was driving through the fields before, doesn't exist anymore. And so there's now 11 pairs of oxen, there's now 11 ploughs, and we know there's also 11 men who can drive those ploughs. There is no longer a role for Elisha on that farm. He has, he has in one fell swoop, deleted himself out of the future of that farm. He has nothing to offer. There is no going back. That's pure obedience. He wants change and he is prepared to do anything that God requires him to do. And so there's a feast. Now feasts are always joyful occasions, although obviously this would have been tinged with sadness. They eat the meat. I mean, two oxen, that is a lot of meat. There would have been a lot of people, all the, all the staff and their families, maybe local villagers. There would have been a big celebration. This was a proper send-off. This was a massive party. This was a way to mark, your, mark yourself leaving home like no other. Elisha does it properly. He doesn't just slink away. He embraces change. He says, guess what? I'm going to destroy this plough. We're going to have a fire. Those two oxen are going to be slaughtered. We're going to eat them. There's going to be eating and drinking and and fun. We're going to make this a, a, a mark in our history. We're going to remember this day forever because this is the day that I have changed because God has called me to do so. Let's just jump forward a couple of thousand years and what does that look like today? What does it look like if we're serious about change? If all those people that are asking me, Tom, what's the church going to look like? How are we going to take these these opportunities? And I say, well, what are the opportunities? People say, I don't know, that's your job. And maybe they're right, maybe it is, but, but each and every one of us has a part to play in any change. Maybe your part is simply not dragging heels and putting up resistance and, and, and kicking against it. Maybe it's embracing the change. Or maybe you're, you felt inspired by God to come up with a new initiative or a new way of doing church. I love the mission service that we had on a Saturday morning. Who does church on a Saturday morning? A few weeks ago, it was brilliant. I loved the communion service last week. We had over 100 people attending an evening service. When was the last time that happened? I love the prayer meetings and the fact that we get more people in our evening prayer meetings than we've had for years. There's so many good things that are happening within our church. There are so many positive things. But if we want those changes to be long-lasting, then we have to commit to them. And that involves us changing. You see, let's not make the mistake of desperately wanting change, but not wanting to be changed. Change is something that we can embrace And if God is really calling us to change at this time, then it's important that we are not fearful of making the sacrifices necessary to allow those changes to happen. Now, please don't think that I'm calling us to go and smash up the church building at Perry Street or Sunnymead and set it on fire and, and roast a cow. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that, as tempting as it is to yearn for how church was up until early March. Let's instead allow ourselves to dream dreams and explore what church might look like going forward. If there are opportunities out there, then let's talk about them. 
Let's share them. Let's explore them together. And let's see what God is putting on our hearts for the future of our church. So if you're watching this in Billericay, or if you're watching this further afield, it doesn't matter. Life is going to change. And we have all got a role to play in making sure that it changes in a way that is, that is for the good, but is also good for God. Let's, let's be obedient in our walk with God. I hope that as a church we are prepared to change, but I also hope that as individuals we are prepared to change. So the question I want to leave you with quite simply is, are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves to challenge his people. You are a God who, who, who loves to, to push us beyond what we think are our limits because you know that our limits actually lie, lie far further out than where we like them to be. Lord, we've been living out of our comfort zone for quite some time, but suddenly we've adjusted. We've adjusted, Lord, to, to find new ways of meeting together as a church, as a body of your people. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the technology and we thank you for the people in our midst who have who've been able to make that technology work. And Father, we pray that in the coming weeks and months, whether we see a, a relaxing of restrictions again or whether we see a full lockdown, Father, whatever the future holds for us, we pray that you will give us the, the inspiration and the confidence to make changes to the way that we are, the way that we worship you, the way that we seek to grow our kingdom. Father, we pray that you will equip us and empower us to reach out to more and more people, to become a more effective church, building your kingdom here in Billericay or elsewhere in the world, wherever we happen to be. Father, you've placed each and every one of us where we are for a reason. And if that reason is for us to bring about change, then Lord, may we not be like the rich young man who finds that just a step too far and walks away from Jesus, sad and empty, rather than embracing him and following him. Instead, Lord, help us to be like Elisha, who was willing to give up his, his earthly wealth at a drop of a hat to celebrate and embrace the facts that you called him to change that you called him to, to, to be a prophet in Israel. He had the humility, he had the courage, and he had the willingness, not just to desire change, but also to be changed. Father, may that be true of us as well. So bless us this week. Whatever situations we face, whatever conversations we have, Father, bless us and be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.